So if you've been with us, you know our teaching series is God Is, and every week we're filling in the blanks. God is all-powerful, God is all-knowing, etc. cetera. And, and this week is God is forgiving and just. Um, I had a friend ask me one time, uh, he, he was like, hey man, like how hard is it being a pastor? Like, is it pretty terrible like nowadays? Like, are people like really mean to you and like in, in this culture? And I was like, look, I don't know what app you've been on or what article you've read, uh, but honestly, everything's pretty good on my end. Uh, uh, the people that come to Hillsborough Village typically are coming by choice. Uh, that's the ideal situation. They're not very mean to me. But as I thought about what he asked, like, hey, is it hard being a pastor? Do you ever have like harsh words or, or critiques that like hurt your feelings? I was like, honestly, not hardly ever. Um, but it did make me realize I've had a few. I've had a few like tough conversations or people that frankly just didn't like me and more or less told me that to my face, uh, which I appreciated their honesty, honestly. I'm, I'm down for that. Um, it stung a little bit not being liked. Who, who, who enjoys that? But, but I started thinking back on, on what those conversations like, on what those conversations were like. And I realized, you know, Right now I'm feeling good, but at the time, man, those words really stuck with me. You know, they hurt my feelings, right? Because I, I, I love people. Um, but whenever you get a harsh word or a critique, whether it's fair or not fair, the negativity sticks with you, right? It can kind of stand out. Like if you had a white piece of paper and you took a Sharpie and put one small black dot, you tend to see that black dot more than you see the white piece of paper, right? But I, I think that's less of a pastor thing and more of just a human thing. Like, have you ever noticed that you tend to remember negative things much better? Like, even if you would consider yourself a forgetful person, if someone says something mean to you, you're like, well, all of a sudden, my mind is a steel trap. I'm never going to forget that one, <laughs> right? Does that make sense? Hold on, I got a call. <clears throat> anyway, um, but, but I think this is more of a human thing. Like, I still remember in fifth grade, Josh Anderson telling me that when I run, my feet make too much noise. Hey, kidding, but, and they do, I can hear it. He's right, but it still hurt my feelings. I, I remember in second grade, Hannah Cloak telling me my, hand, my head was too big for my body. That was second grade. I remember I was in chapel. I remember what side of the chapel I was sitting on. Like all of a sudden, my memory, razor sharp. I remember nothing from second grade, but what Hannah said about my head shape, everyone stop looking at my head shape. <laughs> I've been redeemed. Uh, this is exactly how it's intended to be made. Um, but, but I remember that. Like, I don't know about you, but you probably remember getting your feelings hurt in elementary school. And you probably remember very little about elementary school. Does that make sense? I think this is just kind of a human tendency to take negative things and they just kind of stick with us. In fact, this, this man named Dr. Gottman, he's a, he's a marriage counselor. He wrote this article. Here's the headline. Magic relationship ratio according to science. If that doesn't just reek of romance, you know? Um, but he said there's this magic ratio. For every negative interaction you have in your marriage, you need at least five positive ones to balance them out. It's this understanding that in his studies, I, I didn't actually read a ton of this. I just know he's you know, got a PhD and whatever, and he's saying stuff. So anyway, <laughs> he's saying good stuff. But what he's pointing out is, man, for every negative interaction, you actually need a lot more positive ones uh, to balance out that one negative one. And when you think about your lived experience, doesn't that kind of feel true? In fact, I would have guessed like it's 20 to one 
For every negative one, someone tell me they love me and don't stop until, I'm, until I like say, okay, you're good. You know what I mean? It's like I need a lot of positivity to, to help me cancel out some of the negativity in my life. And the reason I say all this is because today we're gonna be back in our anchor passage, Exodus chapter 34, verses six and seven. If you're not there, please turn there. Um, you're, you're gonna wanna read this passage today because I'm gonna talk about it the whole time. Whereas in the past, we've went through a ton of passages every time, we're gonna stick mainly in Exodus 34 today. But at the end of Exodus 34, it starts talking about how God will by no means clear the guilty, how he'll visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And I just feel this when I read the whole passage, you know, we've taken time to walk through this verse slowly. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's faithful, he's compassionate. But if you're like me, like when you read this passage in 2021, as gracious as he might be at the very end when it says, but he'll by no means clear the guilty, I mean, you get real forgetful of everything you just read and went, now wait, hold on. Who's God calling guilty and what's the consequences? And that doesn't seem fair, right? So that gravitational pull toward, wait, that sounds like bad news. So I'm gonna forget all the good news and just that's what you're gonna feel today. But we don't wanna dodge it. I don't wanna not talk about it. And so today that's what we're gonna deep dive into. What does it mean that God is forgiving, uh, but God is also just? And what does scripture have to say about that? And I wanna say on the the, the front end that I I don't wanna dodge what is being said. I I uphold the scripture as 1000% true uh, and, it should apl- and it applies to every human. So we're gonna wade through this together, okay? But the reason it's uncomfortable is because out of nowhere, it feels like there's a line drawn. It's like, whoops, God just went from like all this infinite grace and mercy and love and compassion, but then bloop, there's a line drawn right at the end. Apparently some people are guilty. There's transgression, there's sin, and we don't like lines like that. Especially in our culture today, we don't like lines like that, even though I would say we probably draw them all the time in our own personal life. We have our own lines, but it just doesn't feel good that God might have a line as well, right? Uh, Like I remember in Matthew chapter 18, reading that Peter has this conversation with Jesus around forgiveness. And he needs Jesus to be a scientist, to have a formula. He goes, Jesus, how often should I forgive someone? And he's looking for a number, which is kind of funny to think about, like, 17 times, 27 times, what's the number? And Jesus basically responds with, never stop forgiving people, which sounds so good. Like, oh, thank you, Jesus. But it only sounds good if Jesus is the one that won't stop forgiving. The minute it's for us to never stop forgiving people, it doesn't sound quite as good, right? Like it sounds nice until you actually just live your life until you get cut off in traffic, right? Or until someone gossips about you for the second or the third or even the fourth time, until he or she cheats on you a second or third time, until they don't show up to work a second or third time and you have to have a conversation. Like I can think of several normal human examples where as good as it sounds to have infinite forgiveness, where if someone crosses a line with you, for a certain amount of times, you go, you know what? As much as I was hoping we'd be in close relationship, you've kind of crossed the line, right? Like this can no longer, as much as I wanted a healthy reciprocated relationship, at some point we all have a line. Now it's different for everybody. 
<clears throat> Sorry. For some people, maybe you have more patience, more forgiveness. For others, you have less. But my point is we all have it. As a culture, we have lines. We've talked about it at nauseum. I won't dig into it. But cancel culture is culture having a line. Sometimes the line is explicit and obvious and easy to explain. Other times it's ambiguous and a little more nuanced and a little more behind the scenes and what's really going on here. But that's what cancel culture is. It's our, it's the collective going, you just crossed the line and there's a consequence in our relationship. And as much as we don't want to have to draw lines, we need to understand that if God draws a line with humanity, he draws it much slower than any human ever has. And to read Exodus 34, 6, and 7 and see it as God quickly or impulsively drawing a line would be totally misunderstanding it. He is slow to anger. His mercy, his love, it, it vastly outpaces our own. But today I want to talk about when and where does God draw this line? How do you get to find yourself in the camp of the guilty, full of transgression, iniquity, sin. So that's what we're gonna explore. And I think you're gonna find it to be mostly positive, um, but we're gonna get into some hard stuff too. And if you wanna talk beyond today, please come talk to me. I don't wanna dodge any bullets here. I wanna uphold scripture and, and, and humility, just talk about what, what, what's here for us. So let's start by reading Exodus 34, verses six through seven. Reminder, God's presence is showing up to Moses and this is the first time in scripture that God is going to describe himself, all right? So if someone would be willing, could you read Exodus 34, verses six through seven? Whatever translation you have is totally okay. Someone, someone get it. If you're new, the silent part happens all the time. Usually not this long though. Boom. Okay. We spent a lot of time talking about his mercy, his grace, and his love. On the heels of mercy, grace, love, faithfulness comes forgiveness before judgment. So let's focus in on forgiveness because the order of this passage is critical. So first, God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And one of my hopes for this series is that we've already done away with this false narrative that God of the Old Testament is old, grouchy, grumpy, mad grandpa on the chair, just cynical, right? Hopefully we've done away with that, that God is the same in the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, and, and today. Um, but, but Yahweh God, both father and son, has already been described in this passage as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, faithfulness, and he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Did you know that the word forgiveness shows up in the Bible 658 times before Jesus ever even arrives? Forgiveness is talked about. This theme and heart of forgiveness runs from beginning to end, cover to cover, throughout the scriptures. In fact, one scholar says, thus the New Testament doctrine, the story of Jesus, the story of forgiveness of sins, 
on which the promise of eternal life so decidedly depends, it flows from the very nature of God. He doesn't reluctantly forgive sins against himself and others. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character by which he delights in doing so. Uh, In other words, did you guys catch that? I felt kind of wordy when I read it out loud. But anyway, it's really good if you can read it, but I don't have a slide for it. Anyway, all it's really saying there is, hey, when Jesus shows up, it's not this, wait, what a minute, wait, what? God's forgiving? That's crazy. No, it's Jesus is this natural, it fits the narrative. It makes sense from the beginning that God would send this solution himself in the flesh for the forgiveness of the world. The word forgiving in Exodus 34, it means to lift up, to carry to take away. So even in Exodus 34, it's preparing our spiritual palates for the coming of Jesus. That one day God would permanently lift the sins of the world. That even in Exodus 34, God is prepared to take the burden of sin, a heavy burden, off of the shoulders of humanity just because he's good and gracious, okay? Now it uses three words. It says he forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, okay? That's important um, because he doesn't just say sin here. He lists three different things. Let me walk through these. First, iniquity. This could be translated uh, as wickedness. It means to turn aside from what is good and right. If you've ever been wicked, you know what that is. To, to know good, to intentionally turn away from it, and to indulge in wickedness. God forgives that. This word trans- transgression, you could also use the word rebellion, It's more defiant, it's willful. It's the time where you calculate that you're just done receiving instructions with your parents. You premeditate the smart aleck thing you're gonna say back and then you say it in their face and then you face impending doom, right? But but it's this willful rebellion. It's this, I know what you said, but no. And then sin, the third word is the most general and it just refers to any kind of moral failure. So what God is saying here is any type of wrongdoing, whatever category it's in, he is willing to forgive it. So however you define what you've done, however you define any and all wrongdoing, Exodus 34, six and seven is saying, Yahweh will forgive that wrongdoing. He was quick to forgive that wrongdoing. And remember, this is the description of God's character. It's not saying God is this, one thing, and then he can forgive. It's saying God is forgiving. That's who he is. Forgiveness is an expression of of his actual, genuine, heart of hearts character. So if you wanna know how God feels about you in this passage, the first thing is his default position is one of invitation and love, okay? That precedes him judging the guilty, him judging the iniquity and the transgression and the sin. First comes his forgiveness, okay? This is true in Genesis, Exodus, throughout the Old Testament, as well as the New Testament, all right? So God's first stance, relationship. We good? Does that make sense? Do you see what I mean? We're a little heady. We're just kind of, not a lot of emotion happening right now, right? Okay, let's move on. God is also just, okay? Here we go. Guys, we're about to just race through this. Just know, we're just scratching the surface, okay? Okay water went up my nostril. Stupid. 
I don't work out either. This is a lie. I don't know why. I, I lost my other bottle. Uh, the shaker, it, not even. I don't even know what's in there. All right. Um, so God is just. Let's reread it just so we can feel it. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation, okay? First, I want you to know about Exodus chapter 20, verse five. Write that down if you're taking notes. If you've read that verse, I think it kind of feeds what we're reading here. In Exodus 20, verse five, God says this. God is a jealous God who visits the iniquity of the fathers, sound familiar, on the children to the third and fourth generation, right? Sounds very similar, but he adds a little detail. He visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. That's what it says in Exodus 20 verse five, okay? So it's important to understand that God is not judging the innocent as guilty here, okay? He's judging the guilty as guilty, all right? It's like showing up to court and the judge claim, uh, the judge, um, what would you say? Judging you, uh, what's it? The judge calling you guilty? What's that called? Yeah, the verdict, yeah, but what's the, I can't get there. Anyway, um, it's like you showing up to court guilty of a crime and the judge saying, you are in fact guilty, right? The judge didn't make you guilty. He just judged what had happened. Like I've went to court for a crime I did commit and the judge said, yes, you did commit that crime. Here's the punishment, right? That's the picture here. It's, it's not an innocent person being like, I don't deserve it. It's like, no, God is the ultimate judge who knows those who hate him, who have willfully rejected relationship with him. Now, some people, I think today, have a harder time admitting, confessing their own sin. We live in a culture where tolerance is sort of the standard, right? Tolerance is kind of the highest of moral values. So it's not very surprising um, when the reality of sin is sort of just rejected at the onset. So culturally, we may not believe this very easily, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is sort of out of step with our time. We're kind of trying to move on from that religious mindset. But what happens to that kind of society that doesn't want to think about sin, that doesn't want to accept that maybe we're responsible for personal wrongdoing unprovoked, right? John Mark Comer says this, because our society denies that all have sinned, it's forced to blame somebody else for all the evils of the world. Listen to talk radio for five minutes. The right will blame ACLU, illegal immigrants and Muslims. The left will blame religion and unsophisticated folk from small towns and rural communities and hedge fund managers. Whatever the issues, it's somebody else's fault. This ongoing denial is deeply fracturing to our society and even more so to our relationship with God. If we refuse to admit we are sinful, we cannot receive Yahweh's forgiveness. What ends up happening there, this is my note now, end quote, we become adult children, constantly blame shifting and finger pointing. Remember what it was like to be seven? How good were you at saying that was not my fault? (laughs) Here's whose fault it was. No one likes a tattletale until it's time to be one. Then you love being one because it helps you not get in trouble, right? Like, you guys remember those days? You're probably still there, maybe still there. I can be there. 
Or maybe you accept that sin's real. People make mistakes, but you just simply don't care. That's also possible. You believe it, you accept it. Logically, you're on board. Okay, there is wrongdoing. It probably deserves some sort of justice. I just don't care. Regardless of how you view sin, I think we have to understand that justice is a good thing. We actually want justice. We may get nervous when we're the ones being judged, but overall, we hope for justice in the world. So even if you cringe when you hear it, we hope that God will bring justice because what does justice result in? Well, according to scripture, justice results in the removal of all sin and wrongdoing. The big picture here is that every tear is wiped away because murder and sexual abuse and greed and lust and envy is done away with. The meta narrative is this great return to Eden, the Garden of Eden, perfect, right relationship with God. And so God delivering justice is not God delivering revenge or some like God-sized vendetta. It's about healing and renewing the world. So God's justice serves in redeeming and restoring humanity and the world itself. Let's focus more on this part. He says, he punishes the children for the sin of the parents, okay? So this troubles us because it feels like, how can someone get in trouble for something they didn't do? But it's important we understand that there's a Jewish idiom here. It's kind of a turn of phrase and it's not actually as simple as, wait, my great granddad lied to his coworker and, and I'm cursed? <laughs> Does it seem right, right? Like, I didn't even know that guy. What was his name? I can't remember. Like, how am I getting in trouble for this? But let's look a little closer. Deuteronomy 24, verse 16, Moses, the same author, says, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Or the prophet Jeremiah, he says, you show love to thousands, but bring the punishment for the parents' sins into the laps of their children after them. You reward each person according to their conduct as their deeds deserve. So Yahweh is not saying if you cheat on your taxes, he'll take out your grandkids uh, several years from now, okay? That's not what he's doing. I think there's actually three big takeaways we can take from this. And if you're taking notes, again, ready? Here it comes. Here's three takeaways when you're thinking about the parents, the kids, the generations. We still here? I know what I'm doing. I I know. Stick with me. Um, I'll tell a funny story if you need one. I probably won't. I don't have one. All right. First, uh, I never have one. That's the joke that's on me. Um, Number one, parents' sin has consequences for children, okay? That's just a thing that you should know. And I think you already know it in in some ways. This is kind of the most obvious and natural of the first two things I wanna cover. One of the most prolific examples of this is when mom and dad gets a divorce, right? The children suffer fallout, both in the immediate and years down the road. There might be grief, trust issues, insecurity, messy holidays, birthdays, Maybe you have a fear of commitment because you saw your parents split up. Like, right, there's, there's a fallout. There's consequences to your parents' decision-making, right? The children can have collateral damage as a result. This is a simple concept. So when you think about the end of that passage, think of that. Or, or number two, we should know that sin runs in the family. 
And that's not as crazy as it sounds. You actually already know this. Like one generation's sin will often become another generation's sin. Example, have you ever noticed when you start sounding more and more like your mom or dad? A few weeks ago, I went on a trip with my dad to watch Tennessee football, and he started really getting on my nerves. And I realized that he was getting on my nerves. Why? Because he was doing the thing that I always do when I'm with people. He was taking control. He was giving instructions. He wanted to do his way. And he wasn't even being mean, but he, was, he always had a preference, and he always said his preference out loud. And I'm like, Dad, let me make the decisions. And I'm like, oh, he's doing what I do every time I'm on a trip, and now we're together, so I'm arguing with me. <laughs> and I am so annoying, <laughs> you know? Have you ever noticed that if you haven't, college students, that is coming your way, like it or not. It gets worse and worse and worse. Um, anyway, this happens but think about, like, think about alcoholism, right? Like kids are three or four times more likely to become alcoholics if one or both of their parents were alcoholics. Or think about if your parents have anger issues, you'll see them pop up. If you were abused, like whatever the thing is, like kids notice things. And so if their parents are constantly gossiping or short-tempered, or if they're hiding things that, that need to come to light, you might find yourself accidentally picking up on those habits as you grow older. More so than their words, you pick up on who they actually are. And if you're not careful, you'll pick up on the toxic things that they present, right? And I wanna pause right there because I also wanna name the power of Jesus in breaking generational cycles. My father was physically and sexually abused his whole child and teenage years. He got saved at 21. I grew up in a Christian home and I've tried my hardest to find any sort of child trauma in me that I took from my parents and bless the Lord, I don't have any. And I don't mean that you don't have any. I don't wanna be like, hey, I don't have any, sorry if you do. But what I wanna just say is, man, the power of Jesus to break generational cycles of sin. I just want to say like, shout out to everyone who is in the midst of breaking a cycle in the name of Jesus. That's so great. Like there are generations of sexual brokenness, sexual secrecy, affairs, divorce, alcoholism, drug addiction. I come from that. I'm an addict. It's in my DNA, but praise Jesus. I'm no longer enslaved. And so to my generation cycle breakers, to my parents that won't be like your parents and that's the best news or to my parents that will be exactly like your parents and that's the best news. Like praise Jesus. Like our destiny is not to end up just like our parents, right? Yeah, all right. I don't know how to end that one. So you guys, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I literally, it just kind of stops in my notes. Like I transition. <laughs> so boom, generation breakers, praise Jesus. It is so possible for you, amen. Uh, third point within this little sub thing that we're doing here. God will continue to punish sin each and every generation, okay? I think this is actually the main meaning of what's happening at the end of verse seven. It's really God just saying, hey, I, I don't stop uh, punishing sin. So if you sin like your parents, it's not because of your parents that you'll be judged for it, it's because of the sin, right? So that's the thing that he has to, do, uh, to judge, so if you continue on in that Exodus chapter 20, verse five, hatred, a life of sin and disobeying God's commands, um, you will face judgment to the third and fourth generation. One more tangent here, okay? I wanna zoom in on that. The third and fourth generation, that use. So the ending to this sentence here from Yahweh is, is pretty profound. 
Um, but it's actually a beautiful picture of who God is. So while a third and fourth generation sounds like really extreme, what you can't miss is the thousandth generation. So the word generation, we've used that. We've, the English language has put this in this passage just to clarify what's happening in Hebrew. A scholar points out in 34, six and seven that it has a poetic rhythm to it. It means that whatever comes after the word thousands earlier in the verse will also come after the third and fourth. So Jesus, or that God, sorry, I'm, I'm, this is really, I'm in the weeds here and I gotta read my notes. So this passage should help us kind of have a scale and weigh out where the most weight falls. So yes, three and four generations of judgment, but original readers would have read that and went, wait, God's mercy and love and kindness goes on for thousands of generations and his judgment only goes on for three or four generations. And they wouldn't leave going, so wait, is it three generations or is it four generations? They wouldn't have gotten like so formulaic with it. They just would have said, wow, the juxtaposition. Yeah, yeah, cry out, our hearts cry. They do, they do. It is, it's hard, but we gotta talk about it. Um, Look at the scale. They would have read it and went, wow, God, in comparison, your mercy and your grace and your loving kindness far outweighs your anger and your judgment. This is incredible. Something that I talked about this morning, like 6 a.m. with Aaron, he's teaching at Cannery, was remember who the Israelites are. The people of Egypt just killed all of their firstborn. They watched their children's, their, all of their children murdered at the hand of the Pharaoh in the name of pagan gods. They knew a culture of gods that were violent and evil and with no question removed their children from the earth. So when they hear this, here's God's way of describing himself. All they would have had was a sigh of relief. Whoa, before you ever judge me, before you ever condemn me, there is an invitation into mercy, into grace, into compassion. So this mercy, this forgiveness is the first thing available. Judgment is not first. Does that make sense? So as you read this in your 2021 lens, understand the weight of this passage is far more on the kindness and mercy of God than it is on the judgment of God. However, the judgment is there, okay? Now I have to just zoom through the New Testament parallel but I'm gonna hit you with this. Take notes again. First, let's remember John 3, 16, because it's the Exodus 34, six and seven incarnate, all right? John 3, 16 is Exodus 34 in the flesh, where Jesus says, God so loved the world that he gave his son that whoever believes will have everlasting life. And he speaks this to a hard-hearted religious elite named Nicodemus. And the hard heart will not perish or suffer judgment if it will yield and surrender to Jesus. His first point of action for humanity is offering salvation. We must understand this about God's nature. His first point of action is an invitation into authentic, pure and holy relationship with him. However, point number two in this new little New Testament category, I guess, that we're in, is he will not force your hand. 
That wouldn't make sense. We wouldn't have covenantal relationship if it wasn't like mutual, reciprocated, right? It reminded me of Mark 10, verse 17, where we get this really important dialogue. There's this guy that's known as a rich, young ruler. And he approaches Jesus, says, Rabbi, I want eternal life. What do I have to do to get it? And there's this really important detail. It says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. So before Jesus gives him the ultimate answer of what it looks like to get eternal life, he says, he just looked at him and that sweet, small voice on the inside just said, man, I love you. And out of love, he says this, let everything go. Surrender your life to me. If you come with me, I will give you everything you're looking for and more. He's got the answer. But the man has a lot of possessions and he walks away sad. He goes, ah, it's too high. That's too much. I can't trust you with my possessions. I can't trust you with my money, with the things that I own. It's just too much, Jesus. And he walks away disappointed. And Jesus, it's really important. He doesn't reach out and go, wait, 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 wait. Like, let me lower the bar. Give me half your heart. Good. Talk to your lawyer. Get back to me. Let's keep negotiating, you know? The man walks away and Jesus watches him walks away and then starts explaining, yeah, it's really hard to have a lot of stuff and follow me. You'll feel that tension to serve both God and money. It just doesn't work out in the end. So God will not force your hand. Jesus will not force your hand. And that leads me to Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46, a really challenging passage, but one we have to know exists because Jesus, as much as he says, John 3, 16, he also says, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. This is when Jesus starts talking about judgment and he starts talking about dividing sheep's from goats. The sheep are the one that belong to Jesus. The goats are the one that do not belong to Jesus. And to sum it up, he goes, the ones that don't belong to me mistreated all the people that I said to love. All the people I said to see and validate and love and pour out into. And really just to sum up a very complicated and big and heavy passage, Jesus goes, for those that, that heard my invitation, that walked away from it, that made the choice to neglect my law that yields a, a love so deep in the world, I will not receive you. If you openly reject me, I will not force you to accept me. You get to have your decision, right? And there will be this day of separation. So. Kind of to sum up, John 3, 16, Jesus is inviting you into deep relationship. Mark 10, 17, he will not force you. Matthew 25, he will hold you accountable and he will do it from a judgment that is right and pure and holy and perfect. This is according to the Old Testament Yahweh and the New Testament Yahweh, the Father and the Son there's this phrase that came to my mind, only God can judge me. I love rap, so I hear it more like in, in, in rap. I don't know how much you think about that phrase. That is exactly right. Only God can judge you. So I don't preach this sermon to make you feel judged. I don't want that seat. I hope you don't want that seat. And I hope you don't accidentally take that seat in your life, casting judgment on others. I've heard friends question the salvation of their peers, and I would just speak intense hesitancy 
to question someone else's soul state. (laughs) So don't hear me using this message and going, you better get right. God's gonna judge you. And in it, you feel me judging you. I am not judging you. However, God can and he will. That is true. Jesus promises that he will come back and he will judge. That's the truth of scripture. And if I've ever preached in a way that softened that truth too much, please hear me, I apologize. I believe Jesus. I believe that his posture is one of invitation and grace so good and infinite you will never ever wrap your mind around it this side of heaven. I also believe you have a choice. I don't believe you're a child. I don't believe, I think I'd be insulting you to make you sound like you don't have a choice. It wasn't your fault. I think you have a choice to say yes to a grace so sweet you can't fathom it. And that one day Jesus will come back and he will assess if you said yes to him or if you rejected him. And he will respond accordingly in holiness in purity, not in impulsivity, not with vengeance, with pure judgment in the best way. So what is that line? How do you become a sheep and not a goat? It's like, that's what this all makes me feel. All right, dude, cool. I need to be in. (laughs) Better to be in than to be out, it sounds like, right? Like, we'd rather be with God than like not with God. Sounds good. What's the line? The line is so predictably what you expect me to say next. The line is Jesus himself. He's the line. And Jesus is readily available. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who never once in his life knew what sin was so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. The only thing unfair in my sermon so far is that we get to take on his righteousness. That's not fair, but it's in our favor. That is the gospel story. That is what I deeply believe in my bones, that God is so unfair. He's so irresponsible. We've heard it in some of our worship songs, but it's in our favor. How do we respond to this invitation? Acts chapter two, when the listeners hear the gospel for the first time ever preached by Peter, they say, what do we do with this message? Peter says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. In Jesus, the best deal, Black Friday can't come close. Like that was a really lame joke because of how far that comparison really is. My bad, I won't do that again. In Jesus, you can receive the free forgiveness of sin. That's why when you get baptized, if you ever see me baptize someone, you'll hear me say when they go underwater, you are dead to sin. Nothing more permanent than death. You are dead to sin. The things that would have you judged before a holy God, you're dead to those things. You come up out of the water, you are alive in Jesus Christ now and forever. That is salvation once and for all. God establishes his righteousness over your soul forever. So God being forgiving and just should not scare you. It should free you. He's forgiving. It should welcome you warmly into the loving arms of God and I don't know how to say this. Sometimes it won't make sense until you just 
do it. <laughs> like, and some of you Christians, you haven't led someone to God recently enough to know how real and dramatic and beautiful this conversion is. Begin praying. I was just talking to my friend at Frothy Monkey and we started talking about how he'd been praying for a guy for three years and a few weeks ago, this story just came to my mind, a few weeks ago he called him and said, hey, I, I, think, I, I think I wanna follow Jesus and be baptized, but, but keep giving me a, give me, give me a second, <laughs> but I'm still thinking about it. But we just started talking and, and we're walking around the block and, and we're praying and we're just like getting, we're hyping each other up. We're like, man, those phone calls, those moments when you see someone go, hey, can't really explain it. Yesterday, didn't really think this was for me. Thought there was some weird juju going on. Wasn't a part of it. But right now, I, I think God is calling me. And if you've ever seen a life transformed, all of this makes sense. That God's forgiveness and his justice is good news. When you've seen death turn to life, it's also beautiful. So we shouldn't be scared of this. We should revere it. We should have humility as we, as we discern it, as we think about what's being said in Exodus 34. But man, we should also feel free and excited. <clears throat> so in closing, sorry, I'm trying to wrap. It's already 10.05. I thought I'd be done by 10.05. We'll make it 10.07. We'll get there. Um, okay, so in closing, how do we respond to Exodus 34, 6 and 7? I would invite you to read verses 8 and 9. It says, and Moses, after hearing this said, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us for it's a stiff-necked people. He's like, my people are stubborn right now, but please go with us and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. That is how we should respond. Moses didn't say, wait, 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 God, that's not fair. Or he didn't go, ah, God's judging me. I, I gotta go run. I gotta go hide. No, he goes, God, I acknowledge God just said that to a mere mortal. I worship you, God. And then he asked for more of God. He goes, God, okay, I hear you. Thank you. Will you please go with me? Please come with me. I need the God of forgiveness and justice with me. And then he prays for forgiveness, not just for himself, but for his people. When is the last time you prayed for forgiveness for your people? When we behold God's forgiveness and justice, may we not respond by finger pointing, by critiquing, by analyzing, by assessing how much or how much we don't agree with God's take on forgiveness and justice. May we see the chasm between man and God and go, God, only you can hold that seat of forgiving sin in the soul and bringing justice to the world. And out of that, I would encourage you, be in reverence, be in awe. He holds that seat and he will give that seat up to no one and no one can take that seat. Worship the power and the righteousness and then say, God, be with me because he is when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, it's not the shamer, the condemner, it's the helper. He doesn't threaten you with justice. He wants to help you and help you see the truth. So God, we ask for you in our life and then ask for forgiveness. God, search my heart for you know right from wrong. You've decided the difference. Find wrongdoing in me and God, please forgive it. 
Find wrongdoing in my family, please forgive it. Find wrongdoing in my friend group, please forgive it. And help me be a conduit of that grace and forgiveness. Now, I know I've talked to you a lot. I think I'm done talking. If you wanna talk or pray or ask questions, this feels like one of those teachings that stirs questions. Please come talk to me or talk to your friends. For now, I'm gonna invite you to get communion and just take it on your own and just ask God, God, is there anything you're wanting to tell me right now in light of this, this message that you're forgiving and you're just? So right now, I'm gonna invite you to go ahead and stand to your feet. We've got communion tables in, I think three corners of the room. Go grab communion. You can take it on your own. I'm gonna give you one or two minutes just to pray and reflect by yourself. Take communion at any point. Our worship team is gonna begin leading in about two or three minutes. Usually we circle up, but because time is just, you know, this was a big teaching. But I also encourage you, any questions or conversations, ask your friends. Take this beyond just this conversation. This is a big one to swallow. Take time to process it today. But feel free to pray, take communion. We'll begin worshiping in two or three minutes. You can be seated, you can stand, you can do whatever you want.